Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. As we quickly approach Tuesday, November 8th, the fight for the next political office within the church or within the state of North Carolina becomes more and more intense. And you see those commercials often, right? They were quiet for a little bit and now there's just things just start ramping up and you get them in your mailbox and you see all these different candidates and what they stand for and this, that, and the other. But they, they are working hard to feverishly shake the hands of potential voters and, and others to be able to get into that office. A couple of weeks ago, we were in Benson, and uh, we were at their Mule Day parade that they had, and there was all these different candidates. I think one of them was Bo Hines, which I'm not even 100% sure who he's running for, but I remember seeing his commercial all the time. Well, he was walking along there, and he's making sure everybody's voting, which we as American citizens have the right to do, and we should vote. But unfortunately, with the rise in the political, uh, I guess, game, if you will, there's oftentimes an onslaught of ads that we would refer to as mudslinging ads. Mudslinging being the term in which the opponents dig deep into the past of their other opponent and they portray them in a bad light in an attempt to sway the voters into their direction. And apparently it's effective because campaigns spend a lot of money to be able to sling mud towards the route of the candidates. And I've heard an article, whether it's true or not, uh, talk about how more and more quality people are less likely to run for office because honestly, they just don't want to put their families through that. They don't want to put their families through the mudslinging and through the glass house that you find yourself in when you're running for office but when we, uh, several years ago, when Donald Trump was uh, running for his reelection and he was going against Joe, President Joe Biden, Donald Trump's campaign spent $80 million on what we would refer to as mudslinging type ads, whereas Biden's campaign spent $65 million, all designed to make their opponent look bad. The goal of each of these ads is to ruin, or at least very, very least, tarnish the perception of the opponent before the voters. Now, there's much to be said when it comes to maintaining a squeaky record. I just saw a commercial yesterday, and I think it might have been Norton's group where they do the antivirus, or it might have been Identity Shield or something, one of those groups. And it was a commercial that was not very well done, low-budgeted commercial, and it was a picture of this gentleman who was interviewing, or he was being interviewed by another lady through Zoom, and they had all these different things, and she's like, listen, we really want to hire you, but can you explain this? And she goes, and she pulls up all these different Google ads based upon this guy's name that were not good ads. They were negative ads. And he's like, I can't believe that garbage is still out there. That really cheesy acting. And then it goes on to talk about how you can purchase this thing called this defender, this reputation defender. Literally, you pay money for somebody to go out there and defend your reputation. There's a lot to be said about having a squeaky clean record. And that's great. But when it comes to your Christian testimony, it's far greater than the importance of any of these mudslinging ads. And the Bible has a lot to say when it comes to maintaining your Christian testimony. There's, uh, there's much to be said as we go through the book of Ephesians, r- focusing on this, this aspect of salvation itself. But as we continue on in Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be focusing on this aspect of the Apostle Paul and, and, and cultivating holiness when it comes to our everyday life. And so take your Bibles with me and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. If you do not have your Bible with you, you can pull the Bible out there in the front. If you don't have a Bible at all, please take that Bible home with you. 
We want that Bible to be a gift to you. The verses will also be on the screen as well. But in Ephesians chapter 4, that is a continuation in this overall letter of Ephesians that the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians within Ephesus. This letter was a little bit different than a lot of the other epistles that he wrote for two main reasons. Number one, it was not written to a specific church itself. We can go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. The Apostle Paul mentions the Christians in Ephesus rather than the church of Ephesus. And so many commentators, many scholars um, believe that this letter was written to all the Christians within Ephesus, meant to be a circulating letter passed from one group to another group, and it all focused on the doctrine of salvation. The second aspect of the letter uh, that makes it different than other letters like Corinthians and Galatians is that this letter was not written to address a specific issue within the church. I had mentioned this before, but when we first started the church, I started going through the, the, the book of 1 Corinthians, and it is a fantastic book but probably not the best book to go through when you first start a church because the Apostle Paul is really honing down on some of the gross immorality that was taking place within the church of Corinth. Well, he doesn't do that here in this letter. He's focusing on the doctrine of salvation, but the the book can really be split up into two different parts. The first three chapters are dealing with the doctrine itself. He's explaining this is the significance of salvation. This is what it means for you to be saved in Christ. This is what it means for you to be in Christ. And then as he goes into chapter 4, he shifts gears in chapters 4, 5, and 6, and he focuses on the practical aspect of salvation. So you can, really, you can really describe it this way. In Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, the Apostle Paul says this is what salvation is. And in Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6, he says this is how you should act because of your salvation. Several weeks ago, we began our study within the practical section of Ephesians. It's been a few weeks because we've been taking some special services and such. But Paul begins Ephesians chapter 4 with this urge for the Christians to walk in unity. He stresses the importance of unity within the church, all for the sake of the gospel. And then he goes on and he continues through this chapter and he focuses on the spiritual gifts. Doesn't talk about all of them, but talks about what we refer to as like the five uh, spiritual gifts that are given to the church. You've got the pastors, you've got the teachers, evangelists, apostles, uh, focusing on the edification of the church and the equipping of the saints. That's what he focuses on here in Ephesians. Those aren't all of them. We see in Romans, we also see in 1 Corinthians as well, the additional spiritual gifts that were given. But the Apostle Paul is emphasizing that church, you must be unified. And in being unified for the sake of Christ, I have given certain gifts to the church to help in growing to be more like Christ in the edification and the equipping of the believer. And then he continues on, and after he talks about the spiritual gifts, he focuses on uh, really the new man and the old man. We see these in verses 17 down to verse 24. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We sometimes refer to this as the put off, put on principle. The Apostle Paul starts off in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. It says, this is how the Gentiles act. They are futile in their mind. We see in Romans chapter 1 that because of the continuous rejection of God, God turns over those that are without Christ to a reprobate mind. Literally, the Bible says they take the things that are logical, the things that are normal, and they flip it around to things that just do not make sense. You can go to our Local campuses, you can go to any community for that matter, and there are um, activists, there are other people that are standing up proclaiming truth that we look at and say, that does not make sense. That biologically does not make sense. Well, that's an example of Romans chapter 1. 
He turns them over to a reprobate mind, uh, more or less. And so the Apostle Paul starts off and says, listen, that's how the Gentiles think, but you're different. You now have Christ. And so therefore, put off the old man, like you take off a jacket, remove the habits of the old man, and put on the new man. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that our salvation is a give and take relationship. And let me make sure I'm being clear on that. We understand that salvation in and of itself is, 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 is nothing that we can do to earn that. Jesus Christ died on the cross on our behalf, and it is through His grace that He offers that we can be saved. But once we are saved, we don't just sit back and say, God, do your work, and then not do anything on our own. There is responsibility on our part to reject the flesh and to lean into or to adhere to the calling of the Spirit. It is, it is there's part of us and our responsibility to do so. So the Apostle Paul talks about this from a broad standpoint in verses 17 down to verse 24. Several weeks ago, we looked at this. You put off the old man, you put on the new man, and it kind of stops in that section. This morning, we are going to continue on in verses 25 to 32. And what we're going to observe here are the practical implications regarding the putting on of the new man. The putting on the new man. The Apostle Paul commands, put on the new man. Now he says in these verses, this is what that looks like. This is what putting on the new man looks like. And so let's read the verses together here, beginning in verse 25. The Bible says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who is in need. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but what it is good and necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ's sake forgave you. Now, there is no great need for me this morning to stand up here and dissect exactly what Paul is saying within this passage because it's all pretty straightforward. But that does not mean that it is not worth our consideration of study. You see, oftentimes the most common things in life are the most overlooked or easily forgotten. For example, one of the most simple tasks within our home is to take your shoes from the back door pick them up because we can't wear the shoes in our home and put them in your closet. But can I tell you that that simple task is oftentimes the most overlooked task? You could probably walk into our home right now and you'll see our kids' shoes right there at the back door. Same thing with our Christian life. The Apostle Paul doesn't give us anything that's earth shadowing, uh, shattering here. We can literally read this, you guys would understand it, and we could walk away and go about our day. But that doesn't mean that we practice this on a daily basis. See, oftentimes the most Easily understood things are oftentimes the most uh, uh, overlooked things. The first thing that Paul, so Paul tells us is that when we exchange the old man for the new man, we must cultivate holiness, and this is exactly what he explains here. This whole term of cultivating holiness can be defined in this way. Many of you know that my wife likes to garden. And this year, we've done something we've never done before, and because we're in North Carolina, you can kind of continue to grow things all year. So we planted a winter garden. So several weeks, how many of you have ever done a winter garden before? You planted some crops in the wintertime and, and kind of carried it on. I know a few of you have. 
And so my wife went out and bought some seeds. And so we went into our garden. And uh, before we could just go in there and plant the seeds, she had to remove the dead tomato plants and pepper plants and okra plants and prepare the soil in order to plant the new seeds. Well, that's like what the Apostle Paul is saying here. If you're going to cultivate holiness, the first thing you have to do is remove the sinful habits in your life. You remove the sinful habits of anger or unrighteous anger. You remove the sinful habits of horrible speech and whatever, fill in the blank. And once you remove that, then you allow the Holy Spirit to continue to work. We call this cultivating. Cultivating has two different parts. Cultivating, first off, is removal of weeds. And secondly, it's loosening of the soil in order to improve the penetration of air and water and other nutrients. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Hence the title of our message this morning, Cultivating Holiness. So the first thing that the Apostle Paul tells us here is that if we're going to put on the new man, we have to first exchange lies for the truth. Exchange lies for the truth. Paul says in verse 25, Therefore put away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. And then the Apostle Paul adds, for we are members of one another. Everybody lies. Politicians lie. Business people lie. Husbands lie. Wives lie. Christian leaders lie. Pastors lie. Everybody lies. For example, one of my favorite things is in the pastor circles is uh, it's a form of lying. Is how, how big is your church? How many do you run? Usually they take the Sunday of the biggest Sunday of the year, which may be Easter or Christmas, add on about another 20, and that's what they say their church runs. So I could say our church runs about 100 people. In reality, it's more like 65, 70. Pastors do that because I don't, not every pastor, but I, I guess there's something within the, the, the realm of a pastor's heart that the bigger church are, the more successful you are. And so unfortunately that happens. And husbands lie. Husbands don't act like you don't. Your wife comes up to you, how does this look? Rather than going into a long conversation of explaining how it looks, you say it looks fine. When in reality, in your mind, you're like, man, I hope she never wears that shirt again. Okay? Unfortunately, people lie, and the Bible says that you exchange lies for the truth. And so, yes, even Christians go through that process of lying. But let's dig into this a little bit, uh, little bit deeper. Paul adds this command at the end of the verse. He says, do not lie, exchange the lies for the truth. For what? We are members of one another. Isn't it interesting that he adds that into the passage here? Well, what's he referring to? He's referring to the members of the body of Christ, the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, it says, For as the body is one in many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Paul then goes on and he explains the ramifications. We looked at this in our Sunday school hour earlier. He explains the ramifications when a member does not act like they should within the body of Christ. I shared this within the church family, or within our Sunday school hour. There's a, there's a statistic across the board, not only for churches, but for other businesses and other things as well, that 20% of churches are held by the people. The giving, the serving are held by 20% of the tenders, whereas the rest of the other 80% of the people don't do anything within the church. When that is not an accurate representation of the body of Christ. So the Apostle Paul says in verses 15 through 19, it says it on your screen, if the foot shall say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is, therefore not, uh, is, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? 
If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. If they were all one member, where would the body be? The Bible is saying here is that just because you may think that you serve in an insignificant role in your mind because you're not on stage, because your spiritual gift is helps, that you can kind of sit back and, and not do as much. Or that you may think that you're ministering and serving is not as important. That's exactly the opposite of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Did you know, and I shared this in Sunday school hour, got confirmation from the scientists that were in there, like Erica and Alina. Did you know that if you were missing your big toe, it would completely throw off the entire balance of your entire body? If your big toe was gone, you lost it in an accident or whatever, it would affect your entire body, your little big, your, your big toe, like a little part of your body. The Apostle Paul says that every single member is important in the body of Christ. Well, so let's think about this lying aspect for a moment. If we are to, supposed to work together uh, for, for the body of Christ, our goal is to help each other become more like Christ. But if we are going through the body of Christ and we're lying to one another by maybe fudging uh, the numbers or fudging information or not telling somebody that is clearly caught up in sin, hey, listen, there's some things we need to work on here in a loving way, then you are lying and not helping the body of Christ to become more like Christ. Let's just use this as an example. Let's say that your hand decided to lie to your brain. Your hand decided to switch hot and cold, uh, uh, switch them around. And so when you touch things that were hot, your hand told you that it was cold. Now, usually when you touch something that is cold, you don't pull it away really fast, right? It's, it's okay. You touch it. It's cold. Fine. Let's just say that your hand decided to lie to your brain. You go to the stove and your stove is piping hot. You touch it, but your hand says, I'm going to fool your brain and I'm going to tell you that that is cold. You keep your hand there. The ramifications of the heat of that stove are still left on your hand. You have severed your hand. You have burned the fingerprints off the tips of your fingers. You could have, for, you could have uh, avoided that if your hand simply told you the truth. Same thing with the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul says that you exchange lives for the truth for the sake of the body of Christ. We are all members one of another. Help each other become more like Christ by lovingly addressing sin and the lives of the believers. By lovingly telling the truth, even though it may be difficult and painful to do so, you are honest with the believers and everyone for that matter. Always. And so first off, you, you exchange lies for the truth. But there is a right way and a wrong way to do that. You can tell somebody the truth and be an absolute jerk about it and not accomplish the goal. So you go up to somebody and you don't salt it with sugar. That's what my dad will always say. You need to salt that or salt it with sugar. You need to sugar those words so it can be easier for people to swallow. The Bible literally talks about that in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11. He says, for apples of gold, um, nah, I don't want to. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. You tell them the truth. But you do it in a loving and gracious way. So first off, to cultivate holiness, we must exchange lies for the truth. But secondly, to cultivate holiness, we must exchange unrighteous anger for righteous anger. Paul says in verses 26 through 27, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. When we typically think of anger, we assume that anger is an emotion that in and of itself is sinful. And that's not at all what the Apostle Paul is saying. In fact, the Apostle Paul commands anger. He commands it, but the type of anger in which the Apostle Paul commands is righteous anger. Righteous anger. 
say, well, Pastor Brandon, what's the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger? Unrighteous anger is an anger that is focused on self. I get angry at Bryce because of what Bryce did to me and how I feel. How dare he do that to me? And so I respond to him in an angry way. I become bitter at Bryce because of what he did to me. That is unrighteous anger. Your spouse says something to you and it frustrates and infuriates you. That is unrighteous anger. Righteous anger is anger that is based upon a love for God and his true and holiness. And therefore we become angry when something violates the picture and the character of who God is. Things like uh, abortion laws and other things that are being passed. We become angry at that because that is righteous anger. We become angry when God's name is blasphemed or when God himself and the character of God is blasphemed. You look at Jesus. When Jesus Christ went into the temple and overthrew the money changers, he was angry because they took the temple and they were taking advantage of the people that were there to perform the sacrifices, charging them way more money than it was worth to, make, uh, to take advantage of their own greed. And Jesus Christ became righteously angry over that. The Apostle Paul says, do not or be angry, but sin not. Be angry and sin not. Now, there is a way to be righteous. It's going back to the lies and the truth thing. You can be righteously angry over something and still sin. If you were, we have the freedom to do this here. I've talked about this a few different times. We have the freedom to do this in the country, and I hope it never changes. I pray that it never changes. The freedom of speech. But you will never see the chapel on the street corner of an abortion clinic yelling at people that walk in there, telling them that they are going to hell because they're aborting. Their, we are righteously angry over that. But that is not going to win people for the sake of the gospel. That is not how we respond. As we continue on, the Paul says, do not sin in your anger. Then he adds this phrase, do not let the sun go down on your wrath or give place to the devil. What he's saying here is literally do not go to bed angry. Because as you go to bed angry, you are opening up yourself for the, not for the, for the possession of the devil. If there's a Christian, we cannot be demon possessed. But you are opening yourself up for a foothold to the devil over the relationship of that person in whom you are angry with. They say marriage advice 101 is don't go to bed angry. Going to bed angry at someone and upset with someone and not taking care of it biblically is giving a place to the devil. The Apostle Paul says if you're going to cultivate holiness in your life, you have to exchange unrighteous anger for righteous anger. But number three, if we're going to cultivate holiness in our life, we have to exchange stealing for honest work. Paul says in verse 28, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who is in need. Within this next command, Paul focuses on two different ends of the spectrum when it comes to stealing. He focuses on stealing and he focuses on providing for the needs of others. Now, the reason why we steal is we are seeking to acquire something that we do not have through an illegal means. And there's two motivations as to why we do that. First off, there is the what we would refer to as the moral motivation. My, my wife is sick, and she needs medication that costs hundreds and hundreds and thousands of dollars. And I do not have the money to do that, so I go and I rob a bank or I rob a drugstore or whatever, fill in the blank, in order to provide the, the means to get that medication so I can take care of my wife. All right? Or I don't have enough money to feed my children. And so I go out and I steal money in order to buy bread to feed my children. That is stealing, but doing it from a moral standpoint. Then you have a selfish way of stealing. Okay, I'm not saying that stealing is good at all, period, but you have a selfish way of stealing. That's going to a store. 
I don't have a video game that I desire. I don't have the money to buy that video game, so I'm gonna shoplift that video game or candy or whatever, fill in the blank. Those are two different forms of stealing, but both of them, for the most part, are based upon a desire to get something that we do not have. And a lot of times, not every time, it's based upon a selfish desire. But what does the Apostle Paul say here? He flips the script entirely. He says, do not, do not steal anymore, but work with your hands. Why? Not so that you can provide for yourself. Why doesn't the Apostle Paul say that? Because you're going to provide for yourself. That is natural. It's not, you don't see anywhere in Scripture where the Apostle Paul says, or God or Jesus for that matter, to love yourself. Right? We don't need to be commanded to love ourselves. That's going to happen. But he says to work providing for your hands. Why? So that you can provide for the needs of others that are in need. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is that you're stealing, which is oftentimes selfish in its desire. Work, I command you to work so that you can provide for the needs of others. You see the heart shift that's happening here? You're moving from a desire of self and pleasing self now to a desire of providing for the needs of others. There's so much more than just this command to not steal but to work in order to provide for the well-being and the means of others. And so we go out and we get jobs and we take care of ourselves, yes, but we provide for others that are in need. We give towards missions, we give towards the church, and we give to other programs in order to provide for those that are in need, not because it makes us feel good, although it does, but it's literally commanded in the Scripture. And so we exchange stealing for honest work. But number four, we exchange slander for edification. He says in verse 29, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for the necessary of edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. That word corrupt comes from the Greek word that means rotten or worthless. A worthless word is a word that does the opposite of education or edification. It breaks down the very image of God. Let's continue on with this concept of the image of God. We saw from the very beginning of time last week, that God created us to be in the image of his son, or his image for that matter, and it was marred over sin. But did you know that once we receive Christ, we are made holy, but our entire journey is to pursue this perfect, restored image of God. Now, that won't happen on this side of eternity, on this side of earth. We are still in a corrupt, fallen body, but eventually we will be restored back into the state of the um, incorruptible image in which we were originally created. When it comes to our words, when it comes to our words, he says corrupt communication because he's, he's letting us understand that our goal in our words is to build each other up into the image of how God originally designed us to be. So you come to church every single week and you hear the preaching of God's word. The purpose of that preaching is not for us to feel good, but it's for me to share truths of scripture so that you can become closer into the image of how God originally created you to be. We call that sanctification. And so when it comes to our language with each other, you can go through and speak words of death and break down the image and how God has created Bryce to be. I can say, Bryce, you're a fool, whatever, fill in the blank. All these words that do not edify, that's not helping him grow to become the image of God. But we speak words that edify, literally speaking words of life into that person, helping them grow in their spiritual journey. And that must be the language that we as Christians have towards one another. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. You're speaking words that are necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each other person. Your grace 
Your, your speech must be seasoned with grace. Again, going back to what I said earlier, you can go up to somebody, you can speak words of truth, but do it in an unloving way and they're not going to receive it. But you can go up to someone very graciously, which some of you have done to me and to others and speak words of, of love and everything must be clothed and just dripping with love. But yet the truth it, 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 the truth is the most loving thing you can say. So it's not like we overlook the sin, but we go up to somebody and we say it in love in a way that we receive it and season with grace so they can become more like the image of God's son. But this is a big deal to God. So much so that he adds in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed until the day of redemption. He says a failure to do these things is literally grieving the Holy Spirit. The Bible gives two different things regarding the Holy Spirit. He says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit and we can quench the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19 says, Do not quench the Holy Spirit. The difference is this. Grieving the Holy Spirit is not doing things, or I'm sorry, doing things that we know we are not supposed to do. I speak words of hate, unloving words to you. I steal. I, 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 I act out in unrighteous anger. That is grieving and saddening the Holy Spirit. Quenching the Holy Spirit is not doing things that the Lord is leading us to do. I'm not going to share the gospel who the, with the person in whom God is calling me and leading me to share the gospel with. I'm not going to give towards that or whatever, fill in the blank of what God is leading me to do that is quenching the Holy Spirit. Both of them have negative implications regarding your spiritual growth. So why am I not growing spiritually? Well, take a look at your life. Are you quenching? Are you grieving the Holy Spirit and not doing the things that God has called you to do? Are you refusing to listen and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit? Maybe God's calling you away from Chapel Hill. Maybe he's calling you to serve on the mission field. I don't know. Maybe he's calling you to use your, 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 your PhD to serve him in some way. You say, well, I won't make as much money doing that. You ain't going to keep it anyway at the end of the life. Why not invest for eternity? Maybe God's calling you to do that. To failure to do so and to become disobedient in that is to quench the Holy Spirit, which negatively impacts your spiritual growth. But finally, here's number five. If we're going to cultivate holiness, we have to exchange hate for love. We have to exchange hate for love. Verse 31 says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. He's summarizing more or less everything that he just went over. Paul begins with this term bitterness. Bitterness is the evidence of this underlying strife that we have towards someone. It's this smoldering that we have towards someone, which oftentimes ends up revealing itself in wrath. Okay, wrath is the response to the bitterness that we have in our hearts. It is somebody acting out in an impulsive way because of the anger that has not been taken care of in their hearts. A lot of times when people go and they murder out of an act of rage, that is wrath. It's my response to you. You see somebody that gets, I don't know, um, frustrated on the road and they get out of their car and they start yelling at somebody and banging on the glass. That is wrath. You're, 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 you're yelling them. It's also clamor. Clamor is this, this, this response that you have in yelling towards someone because of an uncontrolled anger that you have in your life. The Apostle Paul says, get it all away from you. But I think, I think it's important for us to understand that he starts off with bitterness because most of the time, all of this stems from bitterness. I'm bitter at something. I'm bitter at someone. And so you go through life bitter and your fuse is this short and somebody says something to you and you snap at them because there's something in your heart in which you are bitter against that you have never taken care of with the Lord. But he gives the antidote for this. To get rid of all of these things, he says in verse 32, which you know well, 
He says, be kind one to another, what? Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ has forgiven you. How do you overcome all of this? You forgive. You forgive. You forgive. You say, Pastor Brandon, you have no idea what they've done to me. You have no idea what they've done to me. That's why the Apostle Paul says, just as Christ has forgiven you. That word forgive there comes from this term that means to tenderly or graciously pardon. Nobody deserves your forgiveness. I got it. But Jesus didn't deserve to forgive us either. And so there's no, there's nothing that anyone has done that is greater than what we have done to Jesus that cannot be forgiven. There's a story that was written about uh, many years ago about this uh, group of, of prisoners, Scottish prisoners, and they were, they were taken captive by the Japanese soldiers. And they were sent out to this jungle to work, and things became very barbarous. And they were missing a shovel. And the Japanese soldiers lined up all the Scottish prisoners and said, where's the shovel? And they yelled at them, but none of the Scottish soldiers spoke up because none of them took the shovel. They found out later on that that shovel was just missing. It was miscounted. But they continued to berate the Scottish men and they continued to lay on them and say, where's this shovel? If you do not tell us, we're going to begin beating every single person one by one. And sure enough, eventually one gentleman says, I took the shovel. So they took that gentleman, they laid him on the ground and they beat him ruthlessly with the shovel, killing him in front of all the other soldiers. They took his body away and they came to find out later on that they just simply miscounted. Nobody had taken the shovel and so they wrongfully killed that innocent man. But as the war ended, the Japanese were captured and they took all the Japanese and they lined them up in front of the Scottish people. And the Scottish people, rather than get upset with them, the Scottish people said, we need to forgive them. Because they looked back at the sacrifice of what their friend did and they realized that forgiveness is the only way to heal. This man was willing to sacrifice himself so that we can have freedom. And so we're going to lean into that and we're going to use that same type of love and compassion that he had for us. And we're going to display that upon our enemies. And that is the same type of mentality that we must have with those that have wronged us. As followers of Christ, we have received the grace of God that apparently was good enough for us to be able to receive. But yet we withhold that same grace to other people that have wronged us. The Apostle Paul says that if you're going to get these things away from you, you must forgive one another tenderly and compassionately. But as we close this morning, the motivation for us as Christians when it comes to this cultivating holiness must be Jesus Christ. Our eyes must be centered on Jesus so we know exactly how we ought to live. We cannot look to anyone else. Don't look to me. Don't look to anyone else to find that example of how we should live. We look to Jesus. Our hearts must be in tune with Jesus so we know exactly how we ought to forgive. We cannot go through life burdened by this seed of bitterness. The Bible says to give it to Jesus, looking at his example and trust in his gracious power to help us become loving Christians that actively pursue and grow in holiness. That is an example of what putting on the new man looks like. We get rid of these things and we cultivate holiness daily in our hearts to become more like 